Hello, everyone. Welcome to Weird Flicks But Okay. My name is Chelsea. And I'm Eric. And on today's episode, we are going to talk about Alfred Hitchcock's 1954 film, Rear Window. Rear Window is, uh, it's one of my favorite Hitchcock movies. Maybe just my favorite Hitchcock movie. But, uh... And there's a lot of them. There's a lot of Hitchcock out there. He's like the Stephen King of movies, except it's movies and not books. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He makes a lot of movies. Makes a lot of movies. Is the point. Yeah. And I think this is like his 47th or 40-something. 40-somethingth. Film. Yeah, I was trying to avoid saying something, but yes, that's... <laughs> I just dove right into it. It's fine. Yeah. Um, yeah, Alfred Hitchcock was actually one of my, like, kind of introductions into, I guess, film. Like, yeah. I used to watch also, like, the Alfred Hitchcock Hour on TV. He yeah. had, like, an anthology series. Um, and then, obviously, all the movies. The Birds. Yeah. Oh, Vertigo. That's Vertigo. That's the one that I was... I'm not sure if I, like this or Vertigo more. I think I like Uh, Rear Window more, but I love both these movies. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, like, he's a great, he's an amazing place to start for, you know, learning what film even is. And and modern filmmaking. And, you know, he's considered the master of suspense. Everyone loves saying that about him. And I think it's well-deserved. I know, if you didn't say it, I was gonna say it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, he, He really is... Uh, the master of, of uh, as I think Tarantino likes to describe it as the bomb under the table, um, where, you know, he reveals to us that there is something that the characters don't know or whatever. Um, he really sort of, I feel like he invented that in a way, um, or at least refined it to its perfect iteration um, for the time that he was filmmaking. But, yeah. So... Rear window. This movie begins with our protagonist, played by Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart. James Stewart, Jimmy Stewart, whatever. Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> and he is homebound in a small apartment. He has a broken leg and he's stuck in a wheelchair in this small apartment for I think it's been I mean months. It's been a while. Yeah. Which yeah. is very sort of akin to the times that we are currently living in. Yeah. Um, I think everyone can identify with a little bit of cabin fever or uh, just being stuck in a small space because that's literally what everyone is doing right now. It's pretty hyper-relevant, uh, yeah. I would say, right now, for sure. And not just that, but like what he does with that time, too. So we begin in his apartment um, It kind of pans around the room at his photos, gives us the impression that he is a photographer, all his camera gear is everywhere. Uh, For a job, he's basically an action slash travel photographer, and we are led to believe that he was injured on the job, so that's why he's stuck in here. So we see where he is living, and then it pans to outside the window, which we're going to spend a lot of time looking out of and you see a view basically of his neighborhood specifically apartment building and you can see into all the different apartments and that opening shot kind of like lazily goes through each character I guess each character's kind of daily routine so it stops at 
one girl who's like a dancer. She goes by Miss Torso, as our main character calls her. And we kind of watch her go through her day. We see an old married couple, kind of watch them for a few seconds. And then we see a new married couple. So it goes on. And specifically, we see a salesman and his wife who appears to be invalid. And they are kind of going to be the center of the film. So that's how it starts. And uh, I think, too, it's it's really cool the way that the scene sort of pans around in this one big tracking shot in his room, or I guess his, his loft apartment or whatever, yeah. uh, where you see, like, pictures of... Basically, you see the picture that he took that got him in this situation where it's like a, a car... Uh, race car like careening into him basically uh, which is like an amazing shot and it got him an award but it also put him out yeah, so he's at the price of his leg at the price of his leg so clearly we we get the impression just from this one sort of tracking shot around the apartment that he's a bit of like a maverick photographer he's you know like a he's someone who lives for excitement and like adrenaline rush kind of uh, photography and that, I think, right away gives us the impression that this is an extremely unpleasant situation for him to be stuck in. It's not his, like, natural course to just be sitting at home doing nothing. Right. Um, and it's not really anybody's natural course per se, but it's so dramatically the opposite of what he's used to. Right, yeah. And and not only that, but it's also, like, incredibly hot throughout the course of this whole movie. Where yeah. he's just sweating constantly and... and you know, that I think usually we talk about humans tend to get more excitable and irritable and frustrated right. when things are heated up. Yeah, and like the heat makes people a little bit more crazy. A little crazier. That I, you know, it seems like violence occurs a little bit more, like domestic violence and stuff, like when the heat is up, stuff like that. So that's that's like a motif is like just this endless sweltering heat that can't be relieved and then also the sense of just being stuck in a place and not being able to go anywhere and he spends the majority of the movie basically turning his view of the terrace outside and all the apartments into a series of shows yeah television and, shows and he becomes obsessed yeah he certainly does become obsessed which kind of ties into all this this idea of voyeurism and men of voyeurism, voyeurism I know you wanted to kind of talk about with this movie. But yeah, he's obsessed with looking out the window at other people's lives. Yes. And turning what he sees, this limited information, of glimpsing into these people's lives into, into full stories, um, and into full character developments. He's like basically writing character arcs for everyone that he sees and is... In his little view. Which I think we all do to some extent. Yeah. You know, just in everyday life, we're always making inferences about other people and kind of creating our own narratives for them. Yeah. And he does that definitely to an extreme here. Yeah. And, and you know, I think it's a natural human tendency as part of how we evolved from apes is, is our ability to see patterns and our ability to overcome complex challenges and problems and stuff 
because our brains are complex enough to make meaning out of what other living things might find meaningless or whatever. So he's seeing all this mundane stuff that, you know, maybe a dog wouldn't bother thinking about what it means other than like, is this going to get me food or not? But like, you know, for, for this character, Jeff, it's like, he's doing the human thing. He's, he's got a restless mind that's stuck inside and all it can do is just work and work and work because he has nothing else going on. So his brain just goes in circles and he creates these tapestries of, of people's lives behind his, his own building. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a compelling it is concept for sure. And I think that it's super relatable to all humans. Oh, really. absolutely. And it really relates to, I mean, boredom. Yes. Which is kind of tied in with the whole cabin fever idea. And also going along with him, like looking out the window and making all these kind of mini stories about people. I like the idea of like looking at that and comparing it to modern times too. Mm-hmm. Like we're constantly looking through a screen. It's almost like our version of the window, yeah. making these inferences about people and their stories and their lives. And he even questions it out loud too, um, as to how ethical that is. Is it wrong for him to do that? And that's definitely a question to be asked. Yeah. The, the sense of it being a perversion that he's doing it, which is so interesting because as we just said, it's actually very natural for humans to do that. But there are certain things that as human beings, we limit ourselves in certain ways in order to like function societally. And when you're alone, I think a lot of those boundaries start breaking down and, and those barriers between your civil self and your like primal self. And clearly the longer he's here, the more he's leaning towards like primalism and like looking for threats and problem solving, like all these basic elements of like human behavior because all of the nuances of his, you know, complicated modern life are irrelevant right now. Right. And as we were saying before too, like this is so the opposite of what he usually is. He's usually this, um, you know, explorer, adventurer, whatever. And now he's kind of in a position where he feels less than even or kind of pitiful. And that tied in with, the boredom and all of that, the cabin fever, whatever it might be. It's just not a good recipe. Yeah. Yeah. It's a recipe for, for disaster and hijinks at the very least. Yeah. And you can see him kind of, I don't want to say breaking down. He doesn't like necessarily have like a psychotic episode or anything like that, but you can kind of see him break down a little bit. Yeah. Also too, before we get, a little bit more into, you know, what happens outside the window. We also have Grace Kelly as his girlfriend, Lisa. And we have to, of course, talk about her. Yeah, she's magnificent. So he has a girlfriend and her name is Lisa, played by Grace Kelly, who is just an undeniable beauty, essentially. Yeah, just, just crazy. And they do this on purpose because she's... Basically, I mean, on paper, what like any man could say they want. She's beautiful, you know, I guess well-established. She's nice. Like she's not tortured to 
be around or have a conversation right. with. She's and like an idyllic yes. archetype of a perfect spouse or partner. Exactly. Yeah. And then we have uh, Jeff, our main character. And he almost has like a disdain for her. He doesn't want to marry her. He mentions this several times. In fact, we hear a lot about his kind of opposition to marriage, which slowly unravels a bit. But at least in the beginning, he is so against marriage and marriage to her specifically. Um, And there's like a lot of, I guess, I mean, he talks about gender roles and it's kind of what it was like for the time. But also the film kind of recognizes how those might need to be, not changed, but looked at differently. Yeah. Yeah. So it's almost calling attention to it while showing what it was like at the same time. Yeah. It doesn't feel like it's unrealistically progressive uh, for the time. Right. But it just feels like it's aware of things that were definitely the case when it was made. And and it's pointing out, I think, that there are problems there. Even if it's not, like, what the movie's about, I think it's, Yeah, like, it's just... I think it's, like, a more subtle yeah. part of the movie. Um, yeah. But he was on... I know there's this one part, too. He's on the phone with one of his friends, and he's talking about how he doesn't want a wife. He doesn't want anyone to nag him. Yeah. And his friend says... Wives don't nag anymore. They discuss. They discuss yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think they're trying to kind of slowly convince the main character, you know, to have a, a more progressive view, even yeah. for the times. Yeah, yeah. He, he seems like, and I, I think he's le- that his viewpoint of, of her, at least, as far as like my interpretation of it, is that it's a, it's a crutch and it's a means for him to have an excuse to not be tied down um you know he he sort of vilifies her in this way that is has nothing to do with her actual behavior because it's just yeah that he's afraid of commitment and exactly he is he has like severe wanderlust and i think he's worried of like what would happen to him if he was tied down by another person right he's afraid of the commitment but he keeps blaming it on her specifically even when he has discussions with her which she's pretty plain that she wants to be with him and she dotes on him and she's very like loving despite the way he kind of treats her yeah um, and he even has a discussion with her saying you wouldn't be able to travel here you couldn't traipse through the jungle um, i'm not interested in a life you know that, high society life. Yeah, right? high society life where yeah. my biggest worry is where's our lobster dinner and when I'm going to buy the nicest dress. At least in a nutshell, that's like what he's saying to her. Yeah, and and that's that's an important part of her backstory is that she clearly is high society. She's she's a socialite. She she's always out at parties. She's being seen out at parties, which again plays into like the voyeurism because it's like he doesn't go to those things and he observes her at them and then he decides that that means something and he decides what that means in, in relation to himself and he's making it he's basically telling a story he's writing a narrative about her life based on what he sees of her indirectly through the paper and stuff like that but as she proves through the movie uh there's absolutely nothing weak about her 
she's very competent she's adventurous she's yeah spirited um and it's interesting because he doesn't really start to see that until um there's one point in the movie where she leaves and she goes across the street he doesn't really fully see that until he sees her from outside the window yeah which is what he is most interested in it's like it took she that enters his narrative exactly yeah. it took that for him to see it yeah which is so interesting because it's like he doesn't he it's like he doesn't experience life if it's not through a lens and he lives his life as a photographer like that. And now he's living as he's like turning his mundane stuck inside life into that as much as he can. Yeah. So let's turn our focus outside the window because that's obviously where all of the happenings take place. Yeah. So we have all these apartments, different characters and inside, they all play small parts, but it's so fun to watch. I think Hitchcock does such a great job on this set and we're just in one place like we're literally in an apartment or looking out the window at these other apartments it's just this one giant set piece yeah like it's very elaborate and yeah from what I understand it was very expensive for the time too so we have like these different characters to watch like the dancer girl the single woman we have the older single woman Miss Lonely Hearts he calls her who's like just wants a man basically yeah. she's living by herself and then we have a married couple old a newer married couple who like can't keep their hands off each other so like the juxtaposition is really interesting too and then also the musician uh with the piano mm-hmm. he formed um alvin and the chickmunks <laughs> little very little known fact yeah just a little known fact that has nothing to do with anything except you might want to know <laughs> You can impress someone with that knowledge yeah, someday. There's some trivia for your for your brain. <laughs> yeah. So we kind of see these people live throughout their little lives too. And then he focus focuses in specifically on this salesman, Thorwald is his last name, and he's yeah. married, has a wife who's an invalid, she's stuck in bed, and he starts to kind of watch them a little bit closer. And eventually what the whole plot is, is he suspects that Thorwald murdered his wife because eventually he does not see the wife in the apartment anymore. Yeah. And this is interesting because there's one, there's one part of this film that we see uh, that Jeff does not see. And that's Thorwald leaving his apartment with a woman. It doesn't, we can't see if it's his wife or not, but we just know that it's a woman. And, our main character doesn't see that, but we do, which is a very Hitchcock thing to do. Yeah. So that leaves us kind of guessing and as to whether he did kill his wife or not. Yeah. And that's a question that does not get answered, really. Not really. I think it's... course of much of this movie, we, we don't know. Right. Which is interesting because it's like... Jeff is trying to convince, obviously, the audience, and he's also trying to convince the people in his life. Specifically, there's three different people. His girlfriend, Lisa, his nurse, and then a friend of his who's a detective. Mm -hmm. And at one point, he has them pretty convinced. Yeah, all three of them are are with him on this uh, train of suspicion, for sure. Yeah, even the detective kind of checks something out for him at some point. He doesn't stick around as long as the other two. Yeah. But at first, they both treat him with, like, 
you're being crazy. You're, the, you know, you're just cooped up. You don't, you're, you don't, you don't know what you're talking about. You're making basically. up stories. You're making up stories because you're to you're, pass the time, right? And over the course of the movie, he he eventually does enough work to convince them that they're sort of all in agreement with him about what happened, and they help him sort of go about trying to prove it. Yeah, they do. They help him kind of try to prove what he thinks he saw. Well, actually, he didn't even see it, though. He's literally just making inferences. Yeah. (laughs) But so we're looking into his apartment a lot, and there's a scene in that that you really like, too. Yeah, it's one of my favorite scenes in film, probably. There's a scene where they're watching him uh, sitting in the dark. They're, they're looking across the terrace into his apartment and they're talking about how he's got his lights off. So they don't know what he's doing. Um, you can see that they're looking into his apartment, but it's just black other than that there is a lit cigarette and he's like, the man must be sitting on his bed smoking. Um, that is such a great shot. It's that shot is incredible. So unsettling. The, the it gives me chills like every time. And the fact that he didn't, there's no music. It's like just a quiet shot of him yeah. in the dark with the sick. It's, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Like, I, that's the best shot in the whole movie. Yeah, it's amazing. It's so good. And I guess another scene, too, that we see a little bit later, he convinces Lisa, or actually Lisa convinces him to let her kind of go over there and try to investigate inside the apartment Mm -hmm. although i don't think jeff really thought going inside the apartment was a good idea it's obviously kind of dangerous um so she went in to try to find evidence of whether or not he killed his wife but he comes home and he finds her yes and she does find a ring yes which is a damning piece of evidence as far as all the protagonists are concerned right because the story is that his wife just went went away somewhere yeah why would she go without her ring? Right. So it feels like that is answering this question of, like, she's she's been dealt with, basically. Uh, and, you know, some of the early suspicions, I think, came, too, from the fact that the man probably seemed discontent with the fact that he was taking care of this woman who was nothing but... Uh, a source of, you know, need for him to to supply uh, something for. Right. Like, he just takes care of her. He just, that's, like, all he does. And there are times in which he, he appears frustrated, and and then it's, she's gone. And it's, yeah. it's weird, so. <laughs> it's weird, and it's also weird that he would create this murder narrative. Because I think a frustrated husband, I wouldn't think immediately murder. Yeah. So you can definitely argue, too, that this is a story that Jeff has created out of his own boredom. Uh, But in that scene where Grace Kelly's character gets caught, she has the ring behind her back and she's sort of like... She points to it. Pointing to it, yeah, Yeah. so that Jeff can see it. Through the window. um, And knows that she found that piece of evidence. But also a little interesting because I think that's when he might finally start to see her as marriage material. 
Yeah, it's an interesting duality of of imagery, I think, where yeah. it's like the the point in the in the topical sense is that she's showing him the evidence, but it's almost like this secondary image of her being like why don't you do this? Why don't you like put a ring on this finger? So yeah, it's it's really clever, I think, in that way for the way that it projects that moment as being both. But like one of them is like you're reading into it and the other is like it's what she's doing. And I think that that's, again, playing into the whole sort of theme of this movie of like taking meaning from things that may mean something else or, you know, like you need to basically it's a movie about inferring meaning from watching something that is vague and doesn't necessarily have one concise answer or reason. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, that really plays into the, the overall motif of it being like a, a, a theme of meta voyeurism through the movie, because we as an audience are participating in this voyeuristic aspect. We, are looking into the camera, looking into Jeff's life, and Jeff's looking into his camera and his telescope and, and all these things to, to look out at the narratives happening in his own life. So there's this strong sense of, like, everything is through a looking glass, and we are, as an audience, participating in that idea, and we're watching... A narrative unfold and we're making inferences as we watch and we're determining meaning from things that are symbolic because that's how directors tell stories they they show don't tell a lot of the time when they're when they're good especially and hitchcock is amazing yeah he he does it really well yeah especially like that like show don't tell i think hitchcock is one of the masters of that technique and um he actually tells very little I think in like all he his really movies. does. It's a lot about inference, no matter what yeah. film you're watching of his, and he does it again so well. And it impresses me how gripping it can be when they tell you so little. Yeah, especially uh, in a movie like this where you're in one setting. Yeah, he makes it interesting. He makes the story gripping and interesting, and he uses all the right camera angles. Yeah, his uh, presentation is just flawless. It is, and his use of color and lighting. Yeah. It's just. It's perfect. It's perfect. So, yeah, he does this great way of not having to say anything, but he's also making a statement about us as observers being part of the story and that it being witnessed is part of what gives it meaning. Um, yeah, and that's what makes it so meta, yeah, man. So meta. <laughs> just like big brain like this is iq 200 plus uh i think like you know it's that's i think what makes it you can read it as like this really interesting meta film is because it it sort of is about being watched and watching things and voyeurism and we can translate that into our own lives so easily and the fact that it almost requires our participation in viewing it to have its own meaning is 
this great sort of like gripping concept that I think is what makes it like grab you even harder, like in a, in a way where you may not even understand it as you're watching it. It still has this like weirdly connective aspect to it with the audience where I think you just on like a subconscious level, you understand that your participation is actually like part of the involvement of like what this story is and, and everything. Absolutely. His movies are so immersive because of that, because of the way he does it and his style. I can't really think. Can you think of any director, current day directors that are like that, that tell stories the way he does or, or even close? Um, man, that's a good question. I want to say yes, and I'm just not thinking of it yet. I know he's had a lot of influence. He's influenced so many directors. I mean, Tarantino, I think, steals from him all the time. But I wouldn't call Tarantino... No, he's not fully that He He, he has too many influences. Like, you know, he's as much Hitchcock as he is, like, Sergio Leone and Scorsese. And there's just so many references for, for his his movies. But I feel like there are directors that tell stories like this and I'm just not thinking of them yep right now uh but I do I love when movies do the show don't tell thing really well yeah I do too I mean I know there's a few movies that have kind of tried but not necessarily been successful like have you guys have seen the film Disturbia oh yeah like literally it's modern remake yeah it's like the modern like you said, remake of Rear Window, but so much worse. And it's like trying to do all of the things that Rear Window did while using none of the techniques. So it just does not work. Yeah. Doesn't land at all. At all. Yeah. I haven't seen it, but I know. Yeah. And I, I do believe there's an actual remake too. Of Rear Window. Yeah. Like a 90s version. I haven't seen that one though. So I, I haven't know. either. Yeah. Uh, but if you are interested, definitely watch the original. It's, it's worth so it. It's so good. And yeah, I just can't overstate enough how how clever and like special a movie this is. And the, the use of minimalism as a tool. Um, Hitchcock's, this is not his only movie that he's done that. Uh, Rope was like a one-take film. It was a trick shot where... It's not actually all done in one take, but it appears to all be in one take, which was like one of the early inferences or instances of, of that being a thing. And we've come to see that, you know, like 1917 is sort of the, the most recent big example of a one shot film like that. And you can directly draw a comparison um, to Hitchcock having sort of written the book on how to do a one shot movie mm-hmm. or, you know, if you're going to do a one shot movie, how do you maintain interest for the whole time yeah or and it's so interesting how you can use minimalism to make basically a more impactful story yeah i mean (laughs) or film in general he uses restrictions as a tool like he he basically it's like he deconstructs a film and then he's like what can i limit myself to what is a natural limitation i can put on myself that will benefit the storytelling in some way yeah it almost is like a simplification so you're more focused on the storytelling yeah do we want to talk about the end yeah sure already sure (laughs) yeah so 
I just think this is interesting because like you were saying, technically we don't really ever find out if he killed his wife. Yeah. Though I think it's heavily implied, not for sure, but heavily implied at the end. Um, we have Jeff sitting in his apartment as normal. All the lights are off um, because he suspects that someone has seen him through his window. All his lights are off. He's kind of just laying low and Thorwald comes right in his door. Yeah, to his apartment. Yeah. Comes right in. He just opens the door and it's this massive, like, shadowy figure of a man. Yeah. He is not... He's huge. He's huge. At least he's made to look huge. He looks intimidating. Yeah. It's very, like, Nosferatu moment. Like, Nosferatu comes into the arch of the door and he's, like, taking up the whole doorway. No, it is very much like that. And then Jimmy Stewart... The way the camera's angled, like, he looks even smaller and, yeah. like, closer to the ground. He's definitely extremely vulnerable at this point. Yeah. I mean, what's he going to do? He's in a wheelchair. Yeah. And Thorwald is basically just like, dude, what do you want? Yeah, what What do you want from me? Like, what like, is the point of this? And he has a point with that question. Literally, what does he... Yeah. Why does he care? What does he want from Thorwald? Right. We don't know. We don't know. Other than that, he's bored. Like, it truly is just, like... Mm-hmm his mind is just restless and he's looking for activity and it might it might not have anything to do with his sense of morality like no. it truly could just be this is a thing to do like yeah that pretty much seems like what it is and then so Thorwald asks him what do you want and i think the way he's acting implies guilt mm-hmm. he doesn't straight up say you're right i killed my wife right But I think it's, again, heavily implied, especially when he goes after James Stewart. Yeah. And throws him out the window. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, clearly, like, he's acting, like, I mean, at least, you know, he's acting upset. I don't know if he's, like, necessarily acting guilty, but it does seem like if he were innocent, that he wouldn't feel the need to go to such lengths as to throw his observer out the window exactly and this is like the one part of the movie where you really see its age just the like two seconds when you see the beautiful rotoscope yeah when you see him just fall (laughs) and actually i think hitchcock does that in vertigo a lot right yeah he it's definitely not the only time he does that i mean like yeah he and, you know, it's a limitation of the time. Exactly. I'm sure at the time it looked cool and, like, people were like, oh, wow, it's so gripping. And, like, it doesn't take me out of the movie, really. As much no, as it I doesn't. know that it's, like, an ugly effect, like, I don't just suddenly go, like, well, this whole movie is bullshit. Right. And, like, if know, anything, stop watching. And... Yeah. If anything, it adds to, like, the old school charm. Yes. I would, yeah, for sure. Yeah. That confrontation is amazing. So tense. Um, just the slow approach to the door opening the door yeah slowly coming towards him you're like constantly questioning what's gonna happen next you're like is he gonna be able to get in the door yeah is it thorwald right is he guilty what's he gonna do is someone gonna stop him yeah yeah it's just it's it's so it's so well done um and again like when he first comes in there's no music like when he first comes into the room. It's dark and it's quiet. dark and quiet. And it does the classic movie, the light on the eyes thing. Yeah. You of... just feel like this like staleness yeah. in the air. Whew. Chills. <laughs> it's so good. And it's just another great scene. Like, 
that as far as just talking about great cinematography, like mo number one shot, cigarette in the dark, hands down for me. Number two shot probably is Grace Kelly when Jimmy Stewart wakes up and Grace Kelly's like leaning in towards him. And it's like that classic, like warm, fuzzy, old oh, that soft look, glow. The soft glow on her face. If I could just walk around with that on my face all the time. <laughs> yeah. Why I, isn't that a Snapchat filter? Yeah. But IRL. <laughs> yeah. But just always. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That shot of him like waking up and she's like this, just this like angelic presence, like leaning in, comforting, soothing, beautiful, magnificent. And, like, the whole movie, he's, like, fighting that sense of, of what she is. And that's, like, a f I think that's a fun sort of, like, playful dynamic. Even if it's it's antiquated, there's relevance to it now. And the genders could be reversed. And there's still relevance to, like, you know, people not wanting to settle down. Not wanting to settle down. Always you know, looking again through the other side of the window, the grass is always greener. It's yeah. like that old trope. Yeah. And like, how could you not see like that shot is just supposed to be like, there is no flaw here. Like this is a perfect person and he still like fights it tooth and nail. And I think that the way that that shot tells that without saying anything, is just amazing. Like, it's a combination of Grace Kelly being like absolutely stunning and then also the way it was shot is just magnificent and it's like the one shot in the whole movie that has that It is. It's on the it. only one, yeah. Yeah, which is it's incredible. Like it has such an impact for being like that and so memorable. I remember to this day I haven't watched this movie in years and I can see it like like it was yesterday in my head. Same with the cigarette shot um and then, yeah, the shot of Thorwald's eyes when he comes into mm -hmm. the apartment. And the, when he first comes in, the door opens and he's just this huge silhouette in the blackness. Just filling the entire door frame. Yeah. Like, that's amazing. And I do think, like, No Country for Old Men probably stole that scene a bit when the main character is being chased by the assassin guy. And he's in a hotel and you see... He comes to the door outside and it's so tense, there's no music. And then he turns the light off in the, in the hotel room to try to like not be seen. And he comes to the door and he sees his, the shadow of him under the door and then he leaves and then you mm. see the light go off in the hallway and then he comes back to the door and it's like, oh, he's like. Yeah. He's, this is bad. <laughs> it's not going to be good. I am due for a rewatch of that movie. It's incredible. Which I will have to do. We're going to have to do an episode on that yes. alone. Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. Yeah. That's, it's a masterpiece. But anyway. Yeah. This movie, I think this movie is largely about that sort of just stir crazy boredom that comes from like being isolated. Yeah. And the, the fact, At its heart, really. That's yeah. what it is. And, and humans are such social animals and you know, that this movie's about, like, the perils of ignoring that need in, in ourselves. And the, it's interesting, we did an episode about The Lighthouse not long ago, because I feel like the theme is actually, like, super similar. Absolutely. Obviously, this movie is much more sort of grounded in reality and 
the lighthouse is very like psychedelic sort of freudian mm-hmm. jumble of of imagery which is amazing they're both amazing in different ways and, to me yeah very different but again same type of theme yeah it's the idea that and and you know they say it in that movie and Willem Dafoe is like you know worse than any like storm or any omen of bad luck or anything is the doldrums you face when you're the doldrums yeah <laughs> when you're out at sea um and and these men stuck on this ship in isolation and with right. themselves and and again i think a lot of people can honestly relate to that feeling now if you couldn't before you definitely have had a taste of it in quarantine or isolation whatever yeah, yeah i mean yeah the situation is definitely like people are in slightly different circumstances yeah. but overall most people have been impacted in some way by this and that way generally uh translates as isolation and being sort of stuck in your own home and not being able to go out and just live your life the way that the way that you normally you normally would, would. so i do think rear window is a sort of shockingly relevant to the current crisis that the world is facing with the pandemic and that Im- not like the pandemic itself but the impact on mental health that yes. this situation has caused so many people to have and i think we've all felt it at least a little bit yeah and just weirdly relevant but also just like timeless like the, so timeless it never won't be a relevant story um, right that you know sense of isolation and what humans do when we're reduced to that and the depths we sink to sort of as we fall down the rabbit hole of what do we do with ourselves when there's nothing to do yeah if you if you want to kind of get into classic film or if you want to get into hitchcock or whatever this is a really good one to check out first yeah it's an excellent example of that for sure again super relevant as well yep also i love the end how he ends up with another broken leg from falling out the window. Yeah. I think that might say a thing or two about consequences. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah. He just he just dug up tr- trouble, like, for no reason during this mess because he was bored, and it just ended up making things worse. So, yeah. it's uh, At the same time, though, you know, I think he, he at least learned that Grace Kelly's character is... Yeah. More than he thought she I, was. Yeah, I do think there was some personal growth. And honestly, that man is not young. It was right. time for some personal growth. Yeah, he's not getting any younger. It's not that, you know, you can't do better than Grace Kelly. Like, You just can't. You just can't do it. So, she's literally the Princess of Monaco. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, that kind of wraps up our episode of Weird Flicks But Okay. Talking about Rear Window. Again, if you haven't seen it, strongly recommend. Hopefully we've at least convinced you a little bit that it's a good movie. Yeah, and hopefully you have some time on your hands right now to watch a movie like Rear Window. I know I do. Me too. <laughs> yeah, we can be reached on social media or weirdflixbutokpodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>